Well, you know, Cameron had more people last week, but I can say we were almost filled to capacity. <laughs> almost every seat was filled, you know. Never be able to say that again. <laughs> A good percentage. There was, only, there was only five seats left. There were seven seats left. So anyway, we are in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, and we're going to look at just three verses tonight, uh, 4 through 6. So Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read these four, these three verses here, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Heavenly Father, we pray you're blessed by the reading and the study of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So last night, Cameron introduced us to this pivotal transition in Ephesians, in this, uh, this precious epistle. Uh, when we go from the doctrinal to the application of the doctrinal, the doctrinal truths of Ephesians are re- revealed by Paul are in chapters 1 through 3. And they're really framed back in chapter 1. You guys remember in verse 3 where it read, Blessed be the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The applicational truths, however, the book of Ephesians, revealed by Paul are in, verses, in chapters 4 through 6. And they're framed right here in, in chapter 4, verse 1. We saw this last week. Therefore, I... The prisoner of the Lord exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And this is the high calling of the believer that there would be good fruit. Evidence of your regeneration. That you have truly been converted. That you have truly been set free from sin. That you have truly have new affections. Affections to do what pleases God. And that you truly have a new hatred for sin. Especially your own sin. And that you truly hate that old man because you are a new creation. And as a new creation, the eyes of your heart gaze not horizontally to man, but your eyes gaze vertically to the audience of one. Colossians 1 expands on this walking worthy of the calling so well. It reads, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing good fruit in every good work, and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. So it is this walking in a manner worthy of the Lord that Paul will develop throughout the rest of this epistle that finds its ultimate fulfillment in pleasing God, in bearing fruit, and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. But understand, this is only possible to walk in this manner pleasing to the Lord because the Lord that we seek to please First, graciously gave us all things. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And those blessings, Paul's detailed in the first three chapters, hasn't he? We looked at the election, our election, our predestination, our adoption, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We looked at the coming inheritance, even being sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then we looked at the greatest blessing of all, the supernatural work of salvation, the miracle of of conversion, where God does the impossible. He takes us who are dead in our trespasses and sins, who are following after the course of this world, according to the ruler 
of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, conducting ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children. We were by birth children of wrath. What, what Paul is describing here is someone who is unresponsive to God, but they're fully responsive to sin and the demonic. He's describing someone who is running away from God and right into his own destruction. And that was us. That was us. And the only reason we're not cursing God right now is because he had mercy on us by first making us alive from the dead, calling us out of the darkness that we love so much, and then calling our new regenerated hearts by grace through faith. The greatest blessing given to mankind. This is the irreducible minimum of salvation. Grace through faith, giving us spiritual life from the dead. So Paul is saying to the believer, look where you came from. You couldn't get more depraved. And now look where you are. You are seated in the heavenly places in Christ by the grace of God. Now, if that is foundation coming from the first three chapters of of Ephesians, Paul will spend the next three chapters expounding on our walk as believers, that our walk would be in a manner worthy of our calling, that our walk would please the Lord in all manner, that our walk would be a witness to the watching world. So if if chapters 1 through 3 could be described as how God sees us in Christ, then chapters 4 through 6 could be described as how the world should see Christ in us. Amen? Now, verses tonight will deal with another expectation of our walk in Christ, and that is the unity of the body. And that's really the theme here, is the unity of the body. Not only in verses 3 through 6, but really in this whole section, all the way to verse 16. And just listen to how Paul wraps up this section, verse 15 and 16. Paul says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And it is this unity of the body that has as its purpose not only the blessing of one another, but an even greater purpose. The church can be built up in love. So the building up of the body, the edifying in the body is really the central theme here. And that comes through the unity of the body. Yet before there's unity of the body, Paul is quick to point out the new disposition, the new behavior of the believer who is walking worthy of his calling. So if the body is to be unified and built up, it is only by the good fruit of the spirit of the individual believers displaying, as we looked at last week, the good fruit of humility, of gentleness, of patience and love. These are the non-negotiables. Non-negotiables needed to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as we saw in verse 3. Now, verse 4 tonight reads, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. So here we see the first triad of ones. The first triad of ones oriented around the Holy Spirit, who calls and indwells believers. Next, we'll see in verse 5, the second triad of ones, oriented toward the Lord Jesus Christ, which reads one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then finally, we're going to wrap up in verse 6 with 
when we turn to the singular creator who predestined us before the foundation of the world. The first person of the Trinity, it reads, One God and Father who of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So the Father completes its own triad. Do you see that? Of the Trinity. For whatever is associated with the Spirit in the first triad, in the Son in the second triad, is associated with the Father. For it is He who is over all, through all, and in all. So if you're keeping track, we have here a sevenfold declaration of ones that describes a threefold trinity. And not to make too much of the number seven, which is the number of completion, uh, and nothing describes perfect completion like the divine work of the, of the trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it is describing that completion, that that oneness of the Father, the Godhead working in perfect unison as one God. Because we worship not three God, we worship one God. One mighty God who's miraculously recreated what he created in bringing a spiritual life of people he would call his own, who he would redeem out of the world, who would form only one body through only one spirit, called in only one hope through only one Lord, by only one faith, through only one baptism, to the glory of only one God and Father, of all who is over all, through all, and in all. The seven uses of the word one here speak of the unity of the body, but it also speaks of the exclusivity of the body, meaning one and not many, only one and not many. The exclusivity of the body that makes up not the visible church, but the invisible church. The visible church is what we see in every denomination, every sect, and every cult that claims Christianity. The invisible church, on the other hand, is the true body of Christ, the true bride of Christ, that God is calling out for His Son. This is that mystery we talked about in chapter 3. Not revealed in the Old Testament, but these are they that God has been gathering to His Son from the day of Pentecost. And he will continue to gather until the rapture of the church. And in our three verses tonight, the message is clear. With every successive use of the word one, we see that wide road narrowing, don't we? Further and further down to what? Just a narrow path. Jesus spoke of this narrow path. Jesus, who is the way, the only way to the Father, spoke of this. And in in Matthew, he said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Despite the clarity of Scripture here in Matthew and the rest of Scripture, heralding this exclusivity of those who God has called into one body into Christ, this truth is simply not believed. Do you know 66% of Christians, American Christians, say many religions lead to eternal life? 25 years ago, Billy Graham had a television interview with Robert Shuler. Graham said, I think everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis, in one of his most popular nonfiction works, asserts that there are people in other religions 
who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity, who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Kind of makes you wonder if Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis ever really understood Ephesians. But make no mistake, this teaching is from the pit of hell. This is rank heresy. And that's why you will never hear C.S. Lewis, other than tonight, or Billy Graham quoted from this pulpit because of this kind of stuff. That, and we need to expose them. The truth is the gospel is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. And the, the body of Christ is an exclusive group. An exclusive group saved by grace alone through faith alone. And not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that we may not boast. Our inclusion in this exclusive group of believers that make up the body of Christ, we cannot boast in because we earn none of it. We do not deserve it because it is not of our works. It is the sovereign work of a Trinitarian God who predestined us in eternity past, who redeemed us by the blood of Christ, and then he called us to, our, to himself by an effectual call. And we have no claim on any of it. Scripture is clear by the works of the law. This is Romans 3. No flesh will be justified. No flesh will be saved by good works. So we know the road is narrow. We know we cannot earn entrance through the narrow gate and onto the narrow way that leads to eternal life. We know that it is impossible for, sal- for the salvation of the one body of Christ to be true and the salvation of every other religion and cult to be true at the same time. That would violate the law of non-contradiction, which says that A cannot equal non-A. One commentator put it this way, if Yahweh is the one and only living and true God, there is no other God. If the Bible is the one true revealed revelation of God, there is no other revelation. If the Son of God is Jesus, who, alone, who is alone Lord and alone King, there is no other Lord. If Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin and eternal judgment, there is no other Savior. If sinners can be saved only by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they can't be saved by any other means. If people can only escape hell by trusting in the person and work of Christ, they can't escape hell by any other avenue. If sinners will be in hell forever, if they reject Christ, there is no other way for them to escape. If the sole work that saves sinners is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then no other work can save sinners. The gospel is the only saving truth, then all other claims are lies. If there's only one true religion, then all others are false. And nothing riles up liberals and false Christian sects that push both a soft and hard universalism than these truths of Scripture. And they will say to us inevitably, why are you so tolerant? And we will say, because God is intolerant. He has made only one way to build his body, his bride for his son, not many ways. So let's look at verse 4, the first triad. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Now, it's interesting here in this first triad, it's oriented toward the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's often mischaracterized and overlooked, especially in the health, wealth, and charismatic cults. 
where they often overly spiritualize the extremes of Christianity. Yet we must remember the Holy Spirit's a person. The author Luke tells us in the book of Acts, you guys know it well, Ananias and Sapphira, where they were confronted by Peter for holding back money from the sale of some land. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you have laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Surely one reason begins this first triad with the Holy Spirit in verse 4 is that it was the Holy Spirit that called us in verse 1 to walk in all gentleness, humility, patience, and love in verse 2, and then to keep the unity and the bond of the Spirit of peace in verse 3. So then in verse 4, we see Paul continue to speak of the calling of the Holy Spirit, yet here we see him moving from the daily walk of the individual, that was covered last week by Cameron, to the unity of the body where we see him declaring there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. For it was the Holy Spirit who called us into that one body at the moment of conversion, one singular body consisting of both Jew and Gentile, forming the church that Christ has been building for 2,000 years. And though we are a great multitude of saints, we are one. We are one body, one bride called out of this world, not by some man-made institution who falsely and popishly approves us to their club, but rather this body is the product and work of the Holy Spirit who has applied the external gospel to our hearts, which we hear by grace as an internal effectual call, a call that created in us the hope of the gospel because we believe the promises that we would receive an eternal inheritance as children of God, that we were no longer children of wrath, we were no longer sons of disobedience, and we were no longer following after the ruler of this world, Satan, whose only hope lies in the false hope of idolatry and self-worship, all of which is passing away. Paul is speaking here of real hope, the hope of our calling, the only real hope that avails in this life and passes on to life eternal, but only for those who are marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which only those in the one body are made to drink. Listen to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink one spirit. And because we are one body, of one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we function as one. Though we are many from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, we are the single organism with all the members working in unison. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 12 goes on to say, it says, For also the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has appointed the members, each of them, in the body, just as he desired. 
And if they were all one member, where would the body be? And now there are many members, but one body. Clearly, this is a supernatural body. No man could conceive of such a body. And although there are many churches, there's many denominations, there's only one body. There's only one true church. One body of believers comprised of, the, of Holy Spirit indwelt members that are divinely fitted with gifts to edify the whole. And they're linked together, sharing in the things they have in Christ for the glory of God. Now to the second triad in verse 5. It reads, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In the second triad, we see only one faith, only one baptism. And this is connected to our only Lord, Jesus Christ. For it is our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has purchased us by His blood. So the first triad was oriented around the Holy Spirit. The second triad oriented around our Lord Jesus Christ, who redeems us. It is He who is our deliverer and our ruler, the head of the body. We are both indwelled by the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in the first triad, and we're seen positionally forever in Christ, as we see in the second triad, as the body to Him who is the head. Now, the fact that the one faith in verse 5 is so closely, follows so closely our Lord, and then is immediately followed by the one baptism, all in one short sequence, seems to indicate the intimacy and the closeness of this triad. And just as we saw the first triad oriented around the Holy Spirit in the same way, one New Testament scholar summarized this tightness verse this way. He said, it's better to take the whole sentence as an expressive of a single fundamental fact, one Lord in whom we all believe and in whose name we have been baptized. For we know there's only one baptism, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this baptism is distinctly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as John the Baptist preached in the Gospel of Mark. He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For this is how the body of Christ is formed, by the baptizing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is how we were sealed. This is how we were bound together with Christ, as Galatians records. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So we've been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit and given the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Baptism is the initiator and faith, the lifeblood that is common to all in the body of Christ. So the first triad of ones oriented around the Holy Spirit, the second triad of ones oriented around the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, finally, we come to verse six, the one. And here again, oneness is pressed upon us. For we find our origin in the singular one creator, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we began this chapter last week with Paul speaking to the individual who was to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul expands this out to the unity of one spirit, one body, the church. Now Paul brings this section to a crescendo, climaxing in the first person of the Trinity, our one God and Father. He alone is the preeminent one, as Ephesians 3 records, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. His preeminence is on display here. 
as the seventh of the ones, which speak of his fullness, of his completion, as the one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Meaning he covers all fully and completely. So if we break out this verse into four parts, we could say first, he is the one God and Father speaking of him as the sovereign of the universe. Jewish believers would recognize this, the importance of declaring God as one God. The Shema, which is the most important part of the prayer service in Judaism, declared unequivocally the monotheistic nature of Yahweh, which they took from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Exclusively, he is the father of all those who belong to the family of faith. Not every man or woman is a child of God, but only those who he alone has given the right to be called children of God. As the Gospel of John records, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're not born of our human free will. We're born of God. So if we are born again of God, spiritually, not by our own free will, that's the message that, that John is, the Gospel of John is saying here. Second, we see that our one God and Father is overall, meaning he exercises control over all his creation. So nothing acts outside his purview. Nothing acts outside his decree. Nothing acts outside his sovereignty and nothing acts outside his providence. And third, we see our one God and Father is through all, meaning he acts through all using all things to accomplish his purposes. You know, Acts 4 illustrates this attribute of God so well. It reads, For truly in the city were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And what occurred? The greatest crime in the history of mankind. The killing of the sinless Son of God at the hands of evil men was predestined by Yahweh, working his sovereign control through the sovereign control of Herod, his sovereign control of Pilate, sovereign control of the Romans, sovereign control of the peoples of Israel to accomplish the most pivotal, pivotal event in the, all, uh, on all of hum, human history. And that's the penal substitutionary atonement upon which the salvation of every sinner saved by grace rests. Fourth, we see our one God and Father is in all, meaning he is working in us according to the counsel of his will. Again, reinforced here is the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead, that the Holy Spirit is in us, the Father is in us, the Son is in us. Thus, we see Paul bringing together the triad of ones centered around the Holy Spirit in verse 4, together with the triad of ones centered around the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5, together with the one God and Father in verse 6. All three strands woven together into one, the Father electing a people in eternity past, the Son redeeming those same people, on the cross, and the Holy Spirit calling and sanctifying those same people in time. There is no disagreement in the Godhead. There is no conflict in the Godhead. Perish the thought that the Father would elect one people, the Son would die for all people, and then the Holy Spirit would call the whosoever an altogether different people. 
That is chaos. That is not oneness in the Godhead. That is not unity in the Trinity. The Trinity never works at cross purposes with itself, but rather it is one in essence, three in person, different functions, but acting as one. Just as we, the body of Christ, are to act as one. This is unity amid diversity in the Godhead, which models for us the diversity of gifts within our body, the church, with those gifts being used with unity of purpose to glorify God. And this is what should characterize our church, which is what Paul turns to next, as we'll see in verse 7 next week. But in conclusion, we must recognize that Paul has presented here the way to unity. And it's quite the opposite of postmodernism in the world, isn't it? Which is, it's all gray areas. And it's actually the opposite of ecumenism in the church, which seeks to water down biblical truth and biblical distinctions. Distinctives such as only one body, only one spirit, only one hope, only one Lord, only one faith, only one baptism, only one God and Father. There is only one way. Not many ways taught by C.S. Lewis. Not many ways taught by Billy Graham and others. Just as there is only one truth, Paul is saying, as Christ said, there is only one way, the perfect way, the way of the sovereign Trinitarian God who is in control of all things. So Paul wants us to embrace this perfect sovereignty because this truth unifies the one body and it unifies it in Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we love the clarity of this text, Lord, to learn about the sevenfold declaration of ones that describe a threefold trinity, the trinity which is modeled for us, a diversity, but a oneness, just as the body of Christ is to be diverse in our gifts, but one. We are one body and one faith, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that... Uh, You have brought this truth to us, um, that you have worked all things according to the counsel of your will. And we give you the glory tonight for all this. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.